I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for joining us again to continue this conversation with Steve Bedorf. I think we have spent a big part of the first conversation talking about men's psychology and how to raise good boys to be amazing men that reduce the harmful impact that toxic manhood may have on the world. We continue now to speak about Uh, raising girls about the mistakes that we make and the impact of technology and social media on raising our children, as well as the question of what really are we raising? Is it boys or is it girls? And how do we raise wonderful children in an age where we have to allow choice for gender identification? Steve Bidolf is one of the world's best known parent educators. He is a psychologist for 30 years. And even though he's now retired, he continues to write and teach. His books include The Secret of Happy Children, Raising Boys, Raising Girls, The Manhood and The 10 Things Girls Need Most. Together, those books have been translated to more than 31 languages. They have been sold more than 4 million times and have really helped and influenced the way we look at childhood and the development of our boys to men and our girls to women that are successful in our world and happy at the same time. Steve was voted the Australian Father of the Year in 2001 for his work encouraging dads and he is a member of the Order of Australia for his work in young people's mental health. He has two grown-up children and lives in Tasmania with his wife and co-author, Sharon. I'm sure you're back here because you loved part one, and I can promise you, you'll love part two even more. So there we go, continue the conversation with Steve Bedorf. So first of all, yes, I had the same. I think I remember vividly of age five or six when I went to kindergarten or preschool or whatever, where I was like, okay, so this is how kids behave. They seem to like this. They don't seem to like that. I can pattern those things and I can understand, right? Like you, I always had a big heart, but my ability to translate that into the common way of linking or connecting to people wasn't you know, wasn't the traditional way. I had other ways. And, you know, I remember, of course, in my teenage years when I read like a bookworm, you know, I read Larry King's How to Speak to Anyone About Any Topic and, you know, so many books about how to win friends and influence others, which were quite big hits at the time, about the idea of, okay, there is, you know, a style for conversation. Some people get it naturally and others don't. And, you know, when you really look back at it now, you you realize But yeah, some people get mathematics naturally. I mean, to me, I actually speak numbers probably better than I speak English. I can understand. It's your first language. (laughs) It's my first language, right? And you know, I understand an equation and I wonder why do we have to write a book to explain it? It's so clear in one line, right? And others don't see it that way, but then you learn that skill. And And I say that to everyone listening because I'm sure some of my listeners actually have kids with special needs. And I think the truth is, 
those kids, I don't want to call them special needs. I want to call them hyper-talented. And what happens is that is that a child with a special need is basically incredibly talented at something and less talented at another thing. But interestingly, the things that he's talented at, most people are not talented at. And the thing he or she are, is, is not talented at are things that most people find natural and easy. It's just a different mix of skills. And perhaps if we can give our children that love that you received, that teaching and training, we can get them to places where they become geniuses like you and, and change the world. And I think that's really important. Yes, I'm not sure of that. I, it feels like I'm, I'm still struggling in many domains, but in my work area, I, I had the, some of the best teachers in the world and that ability to, to replicate that. And it was because of having to explain things to myself, it was an incredible gift because then my books were very simple. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And because you have the need to observe the patterns, they're not hidden for you. Mm. So you actually look at the patterns and identify them and then be able to explain them. I think that's amazing, really an amazing skill. You wrote in Manhood about what you called the masks of manhood. Yes. Which I find to be incredibly important for the male psychology, if you want. Because what males do is not only do they get to believe in certain things that they are not naturally feeling they should be, but they're pushed into them like men don't cry. And so what they do is they cover up by wearing masks, like, you know, the tough guy or the cool dude or whatever that, that is. And, and I think these are very, very destructive. Can, can you tell us a bit about your views on this? Yes. Let's come at it from the approach of, of the answers to that or the solution to that, which is if a, a dad listening to the program today, listening to this podcast, by the time his son is getting into his early mid-teens, there's a thing that happens with our boys where they don't like, they're not as impressed with dad as they used to be. Around about 14, boys get actually quite argumentative with their dads. And let's say that dad does this thing. He starts to go with other dads and their sons on camping trips or journeys together. So perhaps three or four male friends take their sons away on a, you know, on a holiday. I don't know, perhaps it might be scuba diving or something like that. So your son, who is a bit over you, <laughs> finds himself talking to some of your friends and your friends of different kinds of men. There might be one who's very scientific and one who's very gentle, one who's very artistic, and maybe one who's who's gay or different ethnicity or something like that. And so your son is starting to put together his masculinity, you know, deciding what kind of man at 14, and really thinking about what kind of man am I going to become? You can say, look, I really like that about that uncle of mine. I want to be a bit like him. And dad's friend from work who, who is really into art, you know, I'm into art too. Dad is not interested in that. And so he puts together a broad-based masculinity based on real-life examples. And that's really healthy. Now, what happened in the past, though, was that boys had such little contact with, um, with men that when this age came of 14, 15, where they're thinking, you know, I'm supposed to be a man, I'm supposed to go up. It's like a steam train coming at you, really, that feeling. It's not a, not a happy feeling, sadly, because it should be. Quick, what do I do to be a man? And depending on their, the kind of neighborhood they live in and the kind of context, if it's a bit tough uh, where they are, then the tough guy is a good mask to put on. 
I'll beat your brains out if you come if you look at me the wrong way. That's a survival mask in some neighborhoods, absolutely. Or it might be the cool dude, you know, who, which is more in the culture now, you know, clothes and the sunglasses and the and the trainers and <laughs> mm. and you know, that's what the chicks go for. And I'll put on the cool dude mask. Another one is the um hardworking go-getter. I'll study hard and I'll win at life through material success yeah yeah Yeah. and there's a fourth one which is big in australia and i don't know if it exists in other cultures but it's the joker (laughs) the guy who's always happy and and always the life of the party and of course what we know as psychologists is also that guy's very likely to be an alcoholic and also to be a quite a high suicide risk because they yes because they have got this image that fools people and so they can't show their pain anywhere. So there's four standard masks, you know, tough guy, cool dude, hard worker, and funny guy, joker. And boys choose one. Right, that's the one I'll go with. And then they get married, their life starts to move on, and it suddenly it stops working for them because what women and children want is a real human being. <laughs> yes. And having a mask at the dinner table is not much juice in that. And if they're lucky, they're able to to take the mask off. If they're unlucky, they just start life starts to have problems. And so the theory of that is really good. And and what I've got interested again is the awareness as we we start to grow in our awareness is I can feel that mask come on. It actually I can feel it in the muscles of my face, Mo. Mm. When I'm about to, <laughs> my wife's called Sharon. If I'm about to kind of sulk at Sharon, or do a kind of long suffering. Don't you realize how hard I work for us kind of number? I can feel my face go into that. And I really hate that now. I hate how manipulative that is and how crappy it is as a way to be a human being. And so I just name it up. I say, sorry, love. I just, I almost got into one of those, you know, I nearly did a mood there and I apologize. Yeah, that's so, so enlightened. I mean, so for all of our listeners, I think, this is a very good advice, really, to actually recognize which mask you're into. But for parents, Steve, so how do we save our kids from wearing those masks? Yeah, well, as I said, if by being as honest as you can possibly be, and so the big tyranny now amongst the people who read books, of course, is there's millions of books on how to be a parent, and it's a kind of a competition to be fantastically aware. And But the truth of parenthood is it is a very error prone system it's a system based on a bit like you know in engineering where there's a feedback and kind of like a gyroscope adjustment yeah yeah yes and recalibrating and we do it by blundering and noticing that we've blundered <laughs> and in in connecting with our children there's a thing called rupture and repair uh-huh. where we don't automatically attune to our children we have to kind of make attempts that fail and through the failure, we think, right, that wasn't right. And we try something else and that works. And that our kids don't stay the same. And so they're continuously expanding as a being. And so what worked a year ago doesn't work anymore. And we'll make a misstep with them and it'll go badly. And we'll have a day that ends really badly. And they're cranky with us and we're cranky with them. And you come back the next day and say, look, I, I shouted at you and I'm really, I want to apologize for that. It's not how I want to be as a father mm. I'm, I'm i'm big and strong and it's scary to have me yelling around the place and i'm sorry and for a little kid to think 
you know, whoa, you know, that's brave. Dad makes mistakes. Mm. Yeah. And does he mean it? You know, and they look at you and you, they can see you, you actually, you are, you're ashamed of it. And shame is important because shame is what signals, I know I've done harm here. And then the repairing is this very interesting thing because repairing is scar tissue and scar tissue is strong. And so after a while, you know, you know, I know with both my kids, certainly with, with Sharon, that we can repair quite bad misunderstandings and have done, we've come through a lot of tough things where I just wasn't enough for the situation. I just didn't get it right. Now I can put that a bit down to Asperger's, but I, I don't want to be an inferior human being. And so I still take responsibility and I got it wrong. And so after a while, there's this feeling like if it takes us all night, we'll talk through this till we fix it. There's a kind of, it's rupture and repair, rupture and repair, rupture and repair. I have to say, this is incredibly profound. And I really, really have to say this is resetting my view of parenthood. So let me explain. I suffer in my judgment of the world, if you want, from the fact that there are so many crappy parents out there. And, you know, sadly, you need a driver's license to drive a car, but you don't need a parent license to have a kid. And so many, many parents are not qualified. And in my mind, my view was put in the effort and learn. And I believe that view is important. But what you're saying here is very different and is very profound because it basically says, the thing is, don't stick to mistakes. It's okay if you're raising a child to try something and it doesn't work, as long as you review the next morning or the same day or the next week and say, this didn't work, what would work? Or if I had, for example, at a point in time attempted to get Aya to love art by pushing her to do one painting a day and that didn't work, maybe I should reflect and say, I should probably do art with her and maybe that will get her there. And if that didn't work, then I can try a third thing and so forth. So what are you saying that trial and error is okay as long as we're alert to it? <laughs> it's not just okay, Mo. It's, it's unavoidable. <laughs> you can, you're, you're either admitting your errors or you're just making a terrible hash of things. And the, what's good about that is the built-in beauty of it is that our kids make mistakes and they know they make mistakes. And if we're not making them as well in a very explicit way, they will have a deep sense of inferiority that there's something wrong with them. We have to convey this feeling of, oh, that's such an amazing message that our mistakes makes them feel it's okay to be human. Exactly. You're very fast on the uptake. Oh my oh, God, exactly. that is such a profound message. So, so parenting is not about being that grandiose, godlike, I don't, you know, I know it all because nobody really knows anything at all. When you're a parent, you're designed to be a parent when you're in your teens or twenties biologically which means you're an idiot anyway. I mean, I apologize for any 20-year-olds, but I'm saying from a fatherhood point of view, you're not really qualified yet to be a father. I mean, I wish I raised my kids with what I know now, right? With what I know now is so much more wise, if you want, in terms of right raising children. And it's okay as long as you have that attitude of I'm going to try my best and I'm going to keep evolving and I'm going to 
keep making it better. I think that's a very profound message. Yes. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I love this conversation. So I have to I have to go to the other side of this, if you don't mind giving me a few more minutes and talking about raising girls. So in raising girls, once again, you shock me when you talk about the five stages because they were not what I expected for a girl. I expected that zero to six, what you said for boys, which was all about love, is actually not there for girls. In, for girls, you know, you, you split this to two stages, zero to two, you talk about security, and zero to five, you talk about exploring, which seemed yes. to my mind as a very boyish thing. Exploring is being <laughs> out there and, you know, being energetic and trying things. You're saying these are important for girls. Yes, I think now it may be that these are a corrective to how misguided we were with girls. Ah. But I'm not sure of that. And so leave that as an open question. But what the world says to girls, we come from a starting point that, that girls are not in good shape. They have terrible incidences of self-harm, anxiety. One in five girls in the Western world will be medicated for anxiety. And that's way, way more than it should be the case. And, and this is a very sudden epidemic of unhappiness in girls that has come up in about 15-year period. So we have things to fix. And so not to two is being loved and secure, but we have to get the message. And often fathers do this with girls the best, is that the world belongs to you. You have a right to be anywhere. And so when you take your daughter climbing trees and playing in the mud and the beach and making a big mess and making loud music and dancing around the house, you're letting her know that the world is for her as absolutely as much as it is for boys. And dads, luckily, most dads love having adventures with their daughters. And, and the research is very clear. Girls with dads who do things with them are much more resilient to anxiety and much more confident in their bodies. And later in the teen years, they also won't be manipulated by boys because they will have this feeling like my dad thinks I'm interesting. My dad loves me. I have you know, a benchmark, what to expect in male treatment. And if you fall below that, yeah, does that make sense, Mo? Makes a ton of sense, yeah. I mean, if dad shows her how precious she is, how independent she can be, how free she can be, then no one can convince her otherwise. And that's a mega responsibility when you think about it. Yes. And I think the, the opposite happens. Dad wants to raise her safe. So they scare her of life, if you want. They tell her you shouldn't be out there, you shouldn't be doing those things. And so accordingly, everything becomes the opposite of what it should be, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I think the other thing, because I want to give as many practical help as I can to people listening, is that girls have a very highly tuned social sense. There's a, there's a thing from our hunter-gatherer days where Women were, were reading the emotions of people around them and, and worked as incredibly well as teams. And so girls are socially aware. But that awareness was based on living in a hunter-gatherer clan of about 20 people, where you knew what everyone was feeling all the time. And you were adapting that and, and working with that. Now, you put that girl on an iPad in her bedroom at night on the internet, and she's in a conversation with potentially thousands of people. And so it's like you've brought a thousand people into her bedroom and they do not 
care about her, they don't have her interests at heart, and yet she will be responsive. If they comment, you know, an absolute stranger on the other side of the world comments on her that she's too fat or she's stupid or just picks on her, and those are the most least evil things people can do on the internet, she'll lie awake worrying about that. And so we, we're very clear now in, in my writing, don't have online devices in kids' bedrooms. Don't even have a smartphone until you're about 16. It's the technology which we are not wired to deal with. So on my Facebook page, we had a big discussion two years ago and people said, here's what we're doing. We put all our devices on the charger in the kitchen at the start of dinner time. We don't touch them till the next morning. And our daughters say, we're so glad you did. We could never have given up our smartphones until you brought in that family rule. Most teenage girls in the Western world are up after midnight checking Instagram. Of course. Checking yeah. TikTok. And it's not a happy thing. It's not like fun. It's like anything I've got to be worried about here. Mm. And that's devastating their mental health because we've allowed the ugliness of the world into their most intimate spaces. And that's one where we should, where we, you know, going against, we should be protecting them. Oh, that is a danger. Falling into the Red Sea and, and having to be yanked out by your, your dad or your mum, that's, that's a good thing to have. Yeah, that's a skill that you can learn. Yeah, but that's right. it's the attack of the madness of the world. I think the other side of it, of course, is the idea of body image and weight and, and all of that and how girls are affected by that. You also speak about that. You say that this is one of the risks when you're raising girls. Is you know, I think you said 15% of girls or women have an eating disorder at a point in their life. 12%, that's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. 12% it's, it's, will have, you know, and, and that's, I used to occasionally have an anorexic patient when I was working 30 years ago. It was a really rare condition. Mm. And now it's everywhere, every street. So, yeah, so don't have televisions on in your living room. It's continuous images of a certain kind of body in a certain kind of shape, especially with kitties under five. You know, just cut down on all that. It goes much further, Steve. I mean, the idea, I was talking to a friend literally yesterday about how girls of 11 and 12 now are trying to look like women. Again, I think you discussed this, you call it too sexy too soon. The idea of, of girls really wanting to grow up before they go through the stages of development to really become full women, which I think in your definition, stage five is preparing for adulthood, which is 14 to 18. So what about that? Yes, basically that's the marketing world. The marketing world decided about 15 years ago to go after the what they call the preteen market. Now, preteen is not, it's not a psychology term. It's a marketing term. Interesting. Yeah, when you're 10, you're not pre-anything. You're just 10. <laughs> and you're supposed to be able to, to be 10. And a healthy 10-year-old is playing with their pets and then running on the beach and enjoying the physicality of their body, you know, sport and, and dance, dance and, and music. Yeah. yeah and, and absolutely unselfconscious. And we have the marketing world has trashed that absolutely because what it specializes in doing is it frightens kids about shaping up, fitting in. Fitting in is a toxic term for girls. And in the UK now, there's a, a thing called rights for girls where they have girls who meet for a year with their mums and other girls and they learn about womanhood. 
and they say we only have one rule in this group of girls going through puberty and that is you don't have to fit in and and it's just this incredibly freeing idea that that tyranny and also what they do is the same with dads they put lots of mums in with lots of daughters in the same room once a month for a year and some of those mums are very big and some of them are very skinny and some of them are scientists and some of them clean motel rooms for a living but have got some bit of a spirit to them that you wouldn't get in an office building. So those girls get kind of affirmed and lifted up by all those women. If your daughter has comes across a woman and she role models so that when a boy says to her, you're fat, your daughter replies, I love my body. <laughs> you know? Oh my God. Yeah. You know, race you to the fence. And she can only say that if she's heard it from some woman. Mm. Yeah, and isn't that isn't that exactly what you would want, though, Mo? Absolutely, absolutely. I I interviewed here Jada Scissor a few weeks ago, who is a plus size model, and she basically says exactly that. And I asked and I said, "Why, Jada? Why are you the one that's celebrating your body that way?" And she said, "Well, my parents made me feel that I can be anything I want. That it doesn't matter what I looked like." to become the person that can be happy and enjoy life and find love and engage and be successful. And I think that really, really comes, I mean, body shape is, is the visible side of it, but I think our kids are suffering from so many other things, so many limitations, so many expectations for that one word that we call fitting in. But the truth is you never fit in anyway. No, and it's not, it's not worth it. It's not absolutely not worth it. No, and I think, oh, just to say that, of course, if... The mothers listening to the podcast that, you know, have a think, do you obsess about weight and do you worry about, you know, is fashion and clothing a big part of how you bond with your children? Because again, what the culture wants us to do is we don't go to the mosque or the church on Sunday, we go to the shopping center <laughs> and our religion is consuming. And many parents have been sucked into this and that clothes are our common interests that maybe as a mum you might want to rethink that because it tells your daughter that our job is to be decorative <laughs> i love and that and i don't know that i don't know that you would want to sign up to that yeah i love that i saw one of my favorite documentaries a long time ago i think it's on it was on netflix it's called misrepresentation like miss world but it's misrepresentation it's all about how we condition women despite telling them you need to be empowered and you have to be free and capable and engaged in the world somehow we always get back to but you have to be a pretty doll too and that is as you rightly said it's entirely up to the mother i think or the community of the mother the community of women that influence a daughter in terms of saying no you can be so many things and it's not about your body shape yes and the dads too yes mm. Yeah, I have to ask you the most controversial question of all, and I, I hope you don't mind that. So you have a book that says, of course, you have many books, but you have one that says raising boys and another that says raising girls. And the modern world today is saying, no, no, it's not just boys and girls. And there are so many other identities and you should be open. As a matter of fact, now I heard, and I don't know if that's true, that America, for example, is now saying Kids should have the right to choose to be transgenders if they were even before adulthood and so on, which seems to be, of course, in many ways, the right way to go, but also in many ways, a bit different than what we were always used to. Because when we raised boys, we raised them in certain ways. When we raised girls, we raised them in other ways. And now the trend is saying, don't raise them differently at all. 
I think that there's there's so much in that question, Mo, and and it it's, is, yeah. it's good. It's good because the thing is that you have to work from where you begin. There's no doubt that there's a gradation within gender, and that my favorite example is that when a baby boy is born, if you take a blood sample from the the umbilical cord, so cord blood, then some boys, when they're born, have very high levels of testosterone in their cord blood. And some boys have quite low levels. And so clearly this has been a, a difference in the, in the womb. And when people began to say, well, does that have any effects at all? They found that high testosterone boys completely correlate with the boys who have trouble with reading and learning to read. Interesting. Yeah. And so... So if you have a high testosterone boy, you have to work against that by talking to him a lot and chatting and reading him stories when he's little so that he cottons on. Because what I joke about, but it's absolutely true, is the world doesn't need men who can wrestle buffalo anymore. <laughs> true. We try to raise our kids for the world of now and the future. And so the low testosterone boys take to learning and communication much better. And so even within the category of boy, there's a gradation, there's a spectrum. And there are girls who are incredibly fantastic engineers and totally interested in the heady world of science. And we have to allow that telling you someone's gender tells you nothing about them as an individual. But statistically is different. You can say most boys and some girls will have these qualities. Most girls and some boys will have these qualities because it's not binary, but it is bipolar, if that makes sense. It looks like that. I'm sort of making it sort of two humps, which overlap for people listening on the podcast. And so my books, we sold 3 million copies just of Raising Boys across the Western world. Someone was buying a copy of that book every three minutes for a long time because parents knew that boys were different or that their boy was different. But the culture, especially the academic world, was saying, no, no, they're all, there's no difference. But parents could see the difference. And it's huge in terms of things like developmentally, um, boys are six to 12 months behind girls in their language skills when they go to school. We actually think many boys should spend another year in kindergarten before they even start school because their brains are much slower developing. Puberty comes a year and a half sooner in girls. And it's short. A girl will be her full height when she's 14. A boy will have puberty later, but it won't be finished till he's about 22. And so there are vast differences. And the risk factors, as I said, a little baby boy, 19 times the chance of going to prison than a little girl. And so the world was very relieved to read Raising Boys because it said, yeah, of course, there's continuum. Of course, there's individual differences and overlap. But if you've got a boy, just check up, you know, don't try to make him into something that he's not. If he needs to run around a lot, he's not bad. That was perhaps the biggest takeaway message. Mom has said to me for the last 20 years, you helped my life because I thought my son was bad because he wouldn't sit still at the table. And, and I said, how old is your boy? They said he's three. <laughs> <laughs> I find that, again, quite profound. So, there's nothing to prevent us from accepting our children in terms of whatever they become, right? Mm. But what you're saying is that biologically, we have different development cycles for boys than for girls. We have different stages of development during that biological cycle for boys than for girls. We have different association 
that requires those with male body parts and male hormones to connect with role models of that type of biology, if you want. There are the same is, is true for girls. And then eventually we should be able to accept whatever people will come into, but that this is not the choices that they make as adults have nothing to do with raising them as children, is what you're saying. As long as we keep an open mind as to what, that they can be themselves and that we don't know what that'll be. It's our job to discover what they are going to go into and to make that possible. That's the great beauty of the new understanding of gender. You never box people in and you start to find that you have a little boy who's way artistic and he's a wonderful communicator and, and you don't force him to play in the front line of the rugby team. You know, you say, okay, this is my son. He's headed this way. He's going to be an artist. You have a girl who just isn't interested in fairy dresses. You know, she wants to put Lego bricks together and, and you encourage that. It's, it's kind of, it's pretty obvious, Mo, when you think about that it. That is it? so, so, so amazing. Look, I will summarize our conversation in one sentence. I adore you. You're an incredible <laughs> being. This is an incredible conversation. I cannot tell you how many thousands and thousands of people will benefit from this. I cannot thank you enough, Steve. It's been such a pleasure and such enlightenment. It's amazing, really. Thank you so much for being here. You can see I'm a bit embarrassed, but it's been a joy talking to you too, Mo. So thank you very much. I know I'm not even going to ask all of you how much we've enjoyed this conversation. Steve is wonderful in so many ways. I'm sure that he inspired you, whether you're a, a parent already interested in being a parent or reflecting on your own childhood. I think there has been so many gold nuggets in this conversation. And the way Steve puts it is, is so simple and so informative and, and so valuable. I am sure you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you did, please share it with other parents or others that would benefit from it. You can do that by reviewing it on your Apple podcasts. If, uh, if you're using Apple, give us a five stars and tell people a nice comment here and there. Those comments really make a big difference for people looking for something to listen to or just share it on social media or share it on whatever, WhatsApp or text message or write a letter to one of your friends and say, listen to this with uh, slow-mo. Thank you so much for listening. You give me an alibi to talk to the most interesting people everywhere in the world. And I can never pay you back for that privilege. And yeah, as we have taken an hour and a half of your time today, uh, you may think that you've wasted some of your time, but it's absolutely not true because it doesn't matter really how busy you are any day of your life. There's always a little bit of time to slow down. And I love you all for listening. Remember that. And I will see you next time.